0: Hello everyone and welcome to Success Shorts, I'm Errol Chanel. Today we're joined by Ned Johnson. Ned is the founder of Prep Matters, an educational advising and tutoring company in Washington, D.C. He's also a sought-after speaker and teen coach for study skills, parent teen dynamics, and anxiety management. As well as the co-author of The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives, and Conquering the SAT, How Parents Can Help Teens Overcome the Pressure and Succeed. Ned and I always have a fun time chatting when we're together, and today's conversation revolves around some pretty relevant topics like education, standardized tests, and the impact of false negatives. But more importantly, we focus on the importance of fostering optimism. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy our time with Ned Johnson. Let's go. Thank you so much for joining us. No, oh, thanks for having me. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. It's been a hell of a year. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we spoke, uh, it was probably a, two or three months ago, and a lot has happened since then. You know, we've gotten vaccines. We have a new president. New year, new you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all that kind of fun stuff. So I'm just kind of curious, like heading into like this new period, we kind of have a light at the end of the tunnel a little bit. You know, I'm wondering what's one habit or one learning that you learned over the past kind of contentious period that you look forward to getting rid of? And then also, how do you plan on making that stick?
1: A lot of people probably have had the same experience of feeling like half of their waking time, half of their thinking has been allocated to, you know, what's the the latest thing on, on the news. And I'm looking forward to stealing that time and energy and attention back on my life, not what's going on in the news all the while. The thing I'm going to try to do is advice I actually gave to a student who was preparing for the LSAT, who at the same time was just transfixed by the election. And she just had a hard time really focusing on her studies because her brain was dedicated to the latest news cycle. And so I suggested to her that she plan to check in on the news twice a day, three times a day, whatever, and literally put it on her schedule. Because otherwise, I think she would be where I found myself kind of checking what felt like every five minutes. And I also suggested that she really think about what news sources she dials into, what she checks on, and, and make it few rather than all of them. And I reminded myself, if it's really important, it's going to show up on the flagship stations, right? So I don't have to go down these kind of fringe, you know, far to left or far to the right news sites. If it's really important, it's going to show up on the Wall Street Journal. It's going to show up on Fox News. It's going to show up on The Washington Post. You know, whatever your politics are, if it's really fundamentally important, all of those websites will eventually have something to say on it. And so I let them do the sifting, let them do the hard work so I can, you know, maybe spend 10% of my brain focus on the
0: news and the other 90% on me. I think that's phenomenal advice. And today, as we're recording, it's the 6th of January and the Georgia runoff just took place. <laughs> And I think you and I are both in agreement that we just want some boring to happen. We want I, I mean, to be able to shut off our brains a little. You want your news to be boring so your life can be
1: exciting. Because if, 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 if the that. news, yes. right, if the world's on fire, like you, you
0: better, I'm just going to stay home and be safe. No, let's, let's, but yeah, <laughs> we, I, I, we agree. Yeah, and just kind of quick aside on that is whenever someone has... Instability or is really high energy in one area, they usually offset that in some other area. And because of everything that's been going on this past year or so, I feel like all this energy is going in one direction. So, home life and being confined at home has taken on a level of maybe sed- a little bit more of a sedentary stance mm. to offset some of that because your body has to regain that energy somehow. So I think just that that little topic that you hit on right off the bat, which I absolutely love, is the fact that we need to really think about where we direct our energy and are we directing it in the best places for us? I don't think that directing 40 percent of our energy towards an election or towards COVID or towards whatever the hell is going on outside Mm -hmm. of our own circle makes a whole lot of sense. I love that you brought that up, and I hope that whoever's listening really takes a moment to think about that because we could be doing a lot better for ourselves in that area. So I'd love to just kind of transition into a little bit more about you. Sure. uh, Because I find you to be a really fascinating guy. We've spoken a few times on the phone, and every time we do, it's usually an hour plus call because (laughs) we just kind of go off and it's phenomenal. But one of the things about you that I always just kind of feed off of is the fact that you are incredibly optimistic. Even when things are kind of going crazy, you have this really positive energy. So I'm really wondering, how have you been able to cultivate that over your life? Because you have some really interesting twists and turns in your own story. And how do you help others kind of pull that into themselves?
1: Well, boy, it's an interesting question. Your point about we want to work hard and then rest hard. We need to be able to, you know, have the world be excited, but then come back and kind of gather our energy. And that same model applies to how brains are shaped. In a perfect world, we take on and deal with stress, tolerable stressors, because we're going to experience stress in the middle of a football game or a high stakes test or talking to a pretty guy or pretty girl or whatever it happens to be. But then if we recover from that, it wires our brains in a way that we go, oh, I could actually handle that. If the stress is too much and it pancakes us, we really have bad long-term effects. But also, if we never experience any stress, we don't really grow. And so I'm, I'm sure it's a combination of things of just of opportunities to really stretch myself, of having help when I needed it. You know, my experience, I kind of had a not, not a terrible childhood, but not an easy one either. My father's an alcoholic who eventually drank himself to death. And my mother is partly in response to that, really struggled with her own mental health for a long while. And then I did. I spent about three and a half months of seventh grade in a pediatric uh, psychiatric hospital, which was not the greatest experience, but it's what I needed, you know, from that experience and then going through high school it really shaped my brain to think, well, gosh, if I got through that, what else can I kind of get through? And so when things are really bad for me or for my family or for students I'm working with, I'm constantly thinking, how can I solve this? 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 And that's what the experience of stress and then recovery, you know, that when we're in our right minds and the amygdala, the stress response of our brain kind of goes off. In a perfect world, if we have good mental health, the prefrontal cortex, which is problem solving, you know, putting things in perspective, you know, goal directed behavior part of the brain. In a perfect role, when we stress, the prefrontal cortex jumps in and says, what are we going to do here? Not, oh my God, not run for the hills, but says, let's figure out a solution here. And so for me with, you know, 40,000 hours working one-on-one with kids, I'll get students where I'm like, I, I don't know what to do here, but I'll think and I'll think, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I never give up on a kid. And, you know, it, what's the... Uh, There's a great story about Vince Lombardi, right. You know, who finally lost a game and and some reporter asked him, how does it feel to finally lose one coach? And Lombardi says, you know, kind of spits at the guy we didn't lose. We just ran out of time. And so I kind of have that sense of working with, with kids or with my own life is you just, you keep working at it, working at working at it. And if you do most of the time, you can figure out a solution. It may not be, you know, it may not be a Super Bowl win. It may, may not be optimal. But I think I've just cultivated through my own experiences and my own reading of always trying to say there must be a solution here. And then for the ones where there isn't, I guess it's the serenity to prayer. And you just accept what it is by you until the until the bitter end. You just keep fighting.
0: Yeah it's such a healthy mindset. I talk about this all the time now because it, this is really something that we should all kind of grasp as we've gone through this shared experience of COVID. Wherever we're at right now, we've made it through this much. If yep. you're listening to this, we're here. So you, we're now at a different starting point and we know that we can handle a lot more than we did when this all started. So if you can look at it through that lens it's a lot easier to find optimism as you're facing some new challenges that are coming your way, because you already know that you can handle so much. And I'd like to go a little bit more towards what you do professionally. And <laughs> I torment teenagers. No. Actually, you teach teenagers how not to torment themselves. So I want to talk about standardized tests. The last time we were talking, you shared with me a little bit about the origin story of standardized tests in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And standardized tests are nothing new. They've gone back centuries and centuries. Right. But I think it's really interesting that ours kind of started in terms of the military. So I was wondering yeah. if you could share a little bit about that and then sure. how it's kind of progressed and maybe how it's shifted into some of the issues that standardized tests have been facing more recently when it comes to you know some of the inequity and lack of access to some of the resources?
1: It's a great question. The really kind of thumbnail sketch on standardized tests is that they started to flourish in the early part of the 20th century. Really with this flourishing of science, there was also great hope that standardized tests could be developed really based on Alfred Binet and his early kind of IQ test, that standardized tests could be used to figure out who's good at what, and then to point people in the direction of of their natural talents. And so it was really pretty optimistic at the start. A guy named Robert Yerkes, who we may talk about later, designed a test, the army mental tests of 1918. And he talked to the US military and said, look, you guys can use this test to figure out who's naturally good at what and, and who has leadership ability and who should do strategy and, and, and. Because they had you know, so many people come into the army, they really were desperate for a way to sort people to make the best use of human potential. And so it was very hopeful. It didn't turn out to work nearly as well as they hoped it would. And it pointed up a lot of the problems with standardized tests. The biggest thing here was simply that it was a test in English and you had just this tower of babble in terms of recent immigrants who spoke maybe everything in the world except for English. And a huge number of people taking this test were not literate. And so it was, it was flawed from the start and it was flawed at best. And the real problems were the worst parts of these tests were then used to support really kind of xenophobic um, immigration policies and blah, blah, blah. It was well-intentioned. It was designed okay, And it didn't turn out nearly as well as they thought. What happened was a guy named Carl Brigham, who worked for uh, Robert Yerkes, then created the SAT for College Board. When the war was done, like, what are we going to do with standardized tests? Oh, hey, we can use this to help sort students. Right. And who should go to this college and who should go to that college? And a lot of the, the problems of tests, of all the kind of biases that were built into them, kind of percolated into the SAT. Carl Bring was actually you know, part of the American Eugenics Society. So that was sort of problematic. And he had really took standardized tests and pushed them too far and to his credit, all of which he disavowed at the end of his career. And he said, I was wrong about this stuff. But the problem, the genie was out of the bottle a little bit. So the real upside of standardized tests is they have the possibility of identifying talent which is a great thing, right? The problem with that is that depending on how the tests are designed and how they're administered, they can suggest that people don't have talent when they in fact do. And this has been my experience. The people who do really well at standardized tests believe that the test shows how capable, how smart, how academic they are. And they're almost always right. But people who underperform on tests, and there are many, many reasons for this, feel that or fear that or are deeply upset that the test did not, does not capture how bright, how capable, how academic they are. And they are often also right. So we don't get false positives very often at all with standardized tests. But it's really easy to get false negatives. And one of the things, if I go back for just one moment to Robert Yerkes, there's a famous curve. It's a bell curve called the Yerkes-Dodson curve. And it simply looks at performance and stress. And some people perform best when there's almost no stress. They really need very little energy, you know, or, or oomph to, to, to get right on something. That's not me. If I'm bored, I'm not doing anything, right? Some people need a little bit. Some people need a lot. You know, the firefighters of the world. And they sit around talking about football all day. But then when the freaking house on fire, they don't run away from it. They run right into it. These people perform their best under the highest pressure. And so one of the challenges with standardized tests is we have these enormous differences with brains, including how they perform under stress. And so we try to have an objective test that is very sensitive to the subjective experience that individual test takers are having. And that leads to all the problems that that people in college admissions right now are trying to wrap their heads around and that students and parents wrangle with as well, that these tests don't mean the same thing to different people at the same time.
0: It's really interesting to hear how that all plays out with the false negatives and Mm -hmm. the fact that You're trying to take something that is relatively cookie cutter and place it on such a diverse group of people. And also the fact that it's based off of a foundation that started back, you said, in 1918, Mm -hmm. that that foundationally is at its core where where things started, whereas now we have such a far greater grasp of Mm -hmm. psychology Mm -hmm. that... I feel like that should be integrated into it far more. We can understand what people's personality types are now. We didn't have that back then. Right. Is there the potential to layer in something like that to understand which tests we should be administering to a given person that could help to to play into that? Or what are some potential other opportunities for standardized tests to evolve so that it can kind of weed out some of those broader societal issues that it actually reinforces? The great Stephen Jay Gould, professor of of Harvard, among other
1: things, um, has a wonderful book called The Mismeasure of Man. And in it, he actually, he administers that army mental test of 1918 to his Harvard students, and it's laughable. But he talks about the problem with standardized tests, two of the things, well, there are lots, but the two that, that I recall from the book are one, that we use it as a theory of limits. You didn't get the score, therefore you can't, right? And that there's some things that really matter that are very hard to measure. And there are probably some things that are easy to measure that may not really matter. You know, with this latest salvo against the SAT this past year, John Katzman, who founded Princeton Review back in the 80s, had a terrific piece. I think it was in Inside Higher Ed saying that he would love to see... Multiple standardized tests that you have a standardized test that's really looking at creativity and artistic ability. And you have another one for really just linguistics and you have another one, you have another one. Take an example the, the GRE, the math test on the GRE. So the GRE, if people don't know, it, is kind of like an SAT for graduate school. And there's a verbal section, you know, words and reading comprehension. There's a quantitative section. Well, if I'm going to go and get a degree, a PhD in English or Romance languages, how much does my recall of geometry really matter? Why is that used as an admissions tool to get into graduate school? But if you're going to get a PhD in physics or in engineering, the math that's on there, it doesn't really fit anyone so in a perfect world, to, to your ear point, we would have tests that are much more sensitive and much more appropriate to the traits that we're trying to pull out. The problem is that standardized tests are expensive to create, and it works better for testing organizations, and they're going to love me for saying this, to have one test that tries to do everything at once because they've invested the money and they want to get as many people to take it. But those two things are in tension. What's a viable financial model for people who make... These tests, and and to do it well, you really want to do it well, and it is expensive. These are very sophisticated people making these tests, but we end up with a one-size-fits-all, which, of course, so you might go back to where the world was before the SAT, when every college would have its own admissions test, because the likelihood that different universities are, you know, Olin's looking for engineers, right? You know, Middlebury may be looking for more linguists. So that that might be one direction that we go. I would say the real potential would be using these tests, maybe more like AP exams or subject tests where you're testing for a specific body of knowledge and specific skills and not leaning as much on a one size fits all test like the SAT or the ACT.
0: It's been 20 plus years since I took these tests. And I just remember like there were certain things that kept me out of certain schools. Like I was a very good student. Phenomenal athlete, all these different things. Mm -hmm. However, I was not a good test taker. So when it came time to seeing if I could go kick for the Georgetown or Yale football teams, Mm -hmm. waitlisted versus someone who did a lot better on their SATs, because I was very average in that regard. I, I wish I'd been there to help, man. <laughs> you know what? It all played out the way it was yeah, supposed yeah, yeah. to. I was meant to go to St. Anselm College, which is still a good school.
1: Which it's is a wonderful different. place to get to. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, 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 the irony in all this thing, of course, is that you can get a great education everywhere and you can get a terrible education, even at the finest universities in the
0: in the world. hundred percent. It's what you put into it. But one thing that I, I do see a value in is the fact that they are good at helping to be another level of differentiation. Think of an admissions office. But like, mm-hmm. everyone they look at's great mm-hmm. for the most part, right but right. Like, I mean it's hard to weed out some of these kids because they are great students, they are great athletes, they're great oh. civic leaders. They go out and they volunteer on their weekends, like these are really good people, and then the tests come in. <clears throat> However, that's on the plus side, but on the negative side, and this is to what you're getting to is if they see a bad test score, it automatically disqualifies somebody, right, right. What are you seeing as far as institutions looking at things in that regard? The test may tell us one thing, but the schools can actually have a very different approach to how they read the test, letting it be another positive for someone as opposed to being an instant detraction. Do you see that changing at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, every institution, you know, has its own approach, has its own priorities, has its own policies. But certainly 2020 has seen this just proliferation of universities that are test score optional, principally because they had to, because so many kids simply couldn't take the test and they didn't want the lack of a test to be a barrier to kids applying to that college. But certainly, I think the test score optional is going to remain for many, many places. Keel Bello, who works for FAIR tests, which is committed to reformation of, of how standardized tests are used in America, and a very good thinker on this, Says, look, you know, ballet's optional, football's optional, right? You know, that was a skill for you. And so that was on your application to college. It wasn't for me because I didn't play football. You know, he makes the point that, that these tests really, maybe they should remain optional, right? If you do great on them, you throw them in and show this is something else that shows my math ability or whatever. But if you're a kid who, sh- who really shines in school and to your point as a civic leader and an athlete and community service and everything else, And those are the reasons that a college wants to look at me, then you don't submit a score. Now, I'm I'm sort of arguing against my own financial (laughs) interests here, but there's probably a pretty good case for that. The reality is that places like Yale could admit nothing but students with perfect grades, with perfect scores, and still they would turn away people with perfect grades and perfect scores. So I think the appropriate place is to use it as when people do well, that it shows something that's there. But if people can't do well on these things, that maybe they shine with a, with other things. Obviously, for the obvious reason that there are people who can afford the likes of me. I'm awfully good at helping people maximize their potential, and there are, you know, the high school version of me who didn't have family means. I ever took a practice test, or just walked in and, and took the test, and that's true for a lot of kids across the country, um, where they may be leaving hundreds of points on the table because they haven't had the opportunity to get some coaching on how to do their very best on the test. Um, And so I think that colleges are wise to use these tests, but use them in a nuanced way, not as a way to limit people and to keep people out, but as a way to
0: corroborate ability, you know, when people do submit those scores. I'm really hopeful that that becomes more of a widespread use of it. Like you said, that was actually the original intent was to show strength as opposed to point out weaknesses. So to kind of wrap things up, you work with students one-on-one mm-hmm. and try to help them manage the stress of this. How can we take some of what you impart on the kids that you work with and begin to apply that to our own lives so that we can maneuver with a little bit more optimism and a, a little bit more gracefully through some of life's greater stressors? Wow, it's a really good question. A lot of things to say there. You know, for me, the way that I've
1: increasingly come to think about stress, importantly, keep in mind that stress in the right dosage energizes us, right? But too much, it makes us more fearful. It makes us avoid risks. It wipes out motivation. It does all sorts of bad things. So we're trying to find that right balance. I'll go back to you as an athlete. You know, you probably had butterflies before every single time that you kicked before every single game. And that was good because it helped you focus and helped you do your best. But if you were playing against a seventh grade team that could barely play, you're not gonna do your best because you don't have to. But if you'd also lined up and all of a sudden it was NFL linemen coming at you, that might've been too much stress. So for every person and every experience, we're trying to find that sweet spot where it's enough stress that we really experience is excitement and not so much that it wipes us out. 2020 has been a heck of an experiment for us all to kind of see where we are. And I think about stress as the cumulative inflows of stress and the cumulative outflows of stress. And so in order to keep in balance and not just, you know, curl up in bed and pull the covers over our heads, we need to come up with healthier ways to have outflows of stress. And so for me, I am absolutely committed to being well-rested. I am absolutely committed to exercise on a daily basis. And I'm absolutely committed to transcendental meditation because all of these things keep me in balance. And allow me to be more resilient when things, when I get, you know, challenges or blowback or or disasters that drop on my desk. It also allows me to be a lot more effective with kids and their parents when they're upset or stressed out. And I don't overreact. I remain what we talk about as a non-anxious presence. Um, I'll tell you, my twin brother is a paramedic and he was telling me a story last year. There was a a gunshot one, I think, and just it was, you know, it's a bad situation, but he's dealt with us a lot. And he went and he transported this person to the hospital and then for whatever reason was in the room helping with the ER nurses that were there. And at the end of it, the nurse said, you know, thank you so much for being here. You're so calm and you just made it easier for us to do our jobs because we know that stress is contagious. And so is calm. And so, with with all of us feeling that 2020 was on fire, I, we all want that to be less. And so, when we work on things that that can increase our outflows of stress, it's not only good for us, but it's good for our friends and our families and everyone we interact with. It's also so good for the for our country and for the world. So, and I preach this stuff to my students as well because ultimately, I get paid well when they do well. And so, I take really seriously all these skills, because with things like tests and and life as well, it doesn't matter how much they work to put into their own brains. If under too much pressure, they lose their minds. But there are wonderful little tools to
0: help us stay in balance so that we're in our right minds rather than losing our minds. My big takeaway from that is just find your thing that helps you return to calm. And don't forget what that thing is, because when (laughs) when you are under stress, sometimes you do. Or you just become complacent and you sit in it in the stress and you feel like there's nothing you can do. But if you can just remember, oh, all I need to do is get up and go for a run, yep. get out of my chair, get away from the computer screen, go for a run, go meditate, whatever it may be, be able to pull, call back on that. And that's just so a, huge. So,
1: a half an hour of exercise has the same effect on the brain in terms of stress as 25 milligrams of Zoloft.
0: That's a fact that we should all sit on right there. I like that. (laughs) Meg, this has been insightful and, as always, a lot of fun. So thank you so much again. Thanks for your work. It's great to be with you. And that's all we have for this episode of Success Shorts. Hopefully you found today's topic useful. And remember, have fun, stay curious, and keep it short.